I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the ninth chapter, Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 9. I think when preachers come to Romans 9 through 11, they get a little bit skittish. It's been a, it's been a field of great conflict, of much different, different divergence of opinion in the, in the churches, and issues both ancient and, and current uh, come to our attention in the subject matter that Paul raises. Uh, it's the subject matter that really does have to do with the nation of Israel, has to do with the promises that were given to that nation in the Old Covenant, and how those promises come about to be fulfilled in the will and purpose of God. Um, Romans 9-11, through 11, it constitutes a major section of the letter, and it, doesn't, it does form an integral part of the whole of the letter. Paul's not going off on some unrelated tangent. He's returning to themes he's mentioned earlier and expounds many of those earlier mentioned themes with greater measures of fullness. Uh, The unbelief of Israel has raised significant questions impacting the life of the early church. And we see the need that Paul has to be calling the attention of the readers to the fact that in sin there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. In grace there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we're all being justified by the same faith and the same Redeemer whose work for us has provided redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But central to the argument here in chapter 9 is the sixth verse, where Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For Paul, that's the central point of concern. It's a central point of concern really throughout the letter to the book of Romans. Again, we think, I think Romans gets bracketed by a bunch of Um, statements made in chapter 1 that meet us again in chapter 16. Uh, One of those uh, terms is the obedience of faith. You see it in chapter 1, you see it in chapter 16. But another one of these things does relate to this question of um, the word of God not having failed but having been fulfilled. That Christ is the fulfillment of precisely what the Old Testament scriptures spoke of, although it's surprising the way it's been fulfilled, it wasn't as anticipated, it wasn't the way in which it was expected to play out Paul refers to it as a mystery that is hidden for ages but now has been revealed he says that in chapter 16 but in in chapter 1 Paul sees his gospel as a gospel being promised beforehand, you see it in the words of verse 2, he says uh, he set apart for the gospel of God in verse 1, verse 2 which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, Paul's concerned to see that whatever we note in Jesus whatever we understand about Jesus, it's not something that's new in the world It's not something unexpected, unanticipated. It's precisely what has been promised. This gospel is the gospel promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it concerns his son. 
So the Old Testament spoke of God's Son. The Old Testament prophesied the coming of God's Son. Again, Jesus took the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I seem to be referring to that passage over and over and over again, but it's really important that Jesus shows them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Paul's showing um, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promises through the prophets uh, held, uh, held forth. And then in chapter 16, you see how that's bracketed in the 16th verse, the 16th chapter, at the end where Paul says, now to him who is, this is his, his concluding doxology, um, it ends with the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. This is doxology, this is praise, this is worship. What is, what is Paul concluding? What, upon what notes is he concluding um, this matter of uh, his praise to God at the end of the letter? He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Again, that's where chapter 1 began. The gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets of the Old Testament. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, he says, is according to the revelation of the mystery. There's something that was hidden that's now been revealed. The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages... There was a secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. So there was this hidden secret, this mystery that people didn't get. People didn't understand. You read the prophets of the Old Testament, you're not going to really understand what God's doing in the New Testament until the New Testament comes. Until Jesus comes. Until Jesus comes, dies, rises, ascends, is exalted, and sends forth the Spirit, um, we don't understand how the Old Testament prophetic writings has been fulfilled because it's different than what we would have anticipated. It's different from what we would have, um, uh, we would have expected. God's doing something in a different way than would have been expected. Uh, the Old Testament, what happens? Well, all the nations come to Jerusalem and they seek God, right? It's... Uh, always get centripetal and centrifugal. It's the, it's the nations coming to one central point, coming to Jerusalem, learning the ways of God. But in the New Testament, it's now from Jerusalem, the gospel goes forth to the nations. This is simply the opposite direction. Same realities. The nations become the people of God. The nations are brought into the covenant community, but just not in the way that's expected. The way this all happens in the Old Testament is presented in a way in which we might think of Israel's place and position in the whole equation a bit different than how it actually pans out. And because we would think in the Old Testament that Israel is so central to what God is intending to do, we might come to the New Testament and say, well, wait a minute now. Jesus has come, the Spirit has come, and yet Israel does not believe. That's not what we would expect it. We didn't expect it to happen that way. We didn't expect the Jews to recognize their Messiah, to believe in his name, and then they would be the ones through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It doesn't happen that way. It's not through Israel that all the nations of the earth are blessed. Although in another sense it is through Israel that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's because God has redefined Israel. And he's redefined Israel not so much in terms of the people, but in terms of the person, in terms of Jesus. Again, I think one of the real problems I think we have with a lot of people who 
say, well, you are teaching this doctrine of supersessionism, you're teaching replacement theology, is that you're saying the church is better than the synagogue. You're saying that Christians are better than Jews. And it becomes a rather, uh, uh, a rather carnally based rivalry between Jews and Christians. But that's not, the, that's not the point of the New Testament. It's not between Jews and Christians. It's between believing or not believing in Jesus. That's the issue. And it's because Jesus is now the redefined Israel. He's Israel having come and succeeded where Israel as a nation failed. The great Israelite, Jesus himself, comes. Born of the seed of, the, of, the seed of Abraham. Um, come to fulfill all that Israel failed to do. And, and you see it often in the New Testament. How Jesus, we've pointed out from Matthew, other places, he replicates the experience. He um, epitomizes in himself the nation and renders obedience as Israel should have rendered and did not and becomes the one through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. He's the seed of Abraham. And Paul argues in Galatians, not seeds of many, but of one. And his, God's seed, who is, who is Christ? He identifies Christ as the seed of Abraham. And then Christ is understood to be the one through whom the promises are fulfilled and the one through whom the blessings of the covenant come uh, to the nations. So God does this in a way totally unanticipated, totally unexpected. Uh, but yet it doesn't make the word of God to have failed it brings the word of God to its full completion. It brings the word of God to its full um, conclusion that God intended all along. Paul sees it as a mystery. You know, you read a mystery novel, uh, think of Agatha Christie's. Uh, I've been reading Agatha Christie the last few years. I remember the first time I came to the end of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. And in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, she has one of her, oh, Typical Agatha Christie patented surprise endings. And you just wouldn't have anticipated it all along uh, to find that the narrator is the one who did the murder. <laughs> the person who's telling the story is the one who did the murder. The one who felt this was all a plan that he had, ex he had determined to prove that he could pull one over on Hercule Poirot. And, and this would be the one mystery he wasn't able to, to solve. And of course, he does solve it, and then it's exposed. And, but it's kept hidden. It's kept hidden. You read through, if it's a 250-page book, which I don't know that it is, for 240 pages, you don't understand it. You don't get the end. But then you get the end, and then you go back, and you read through it, and yeah, it all hangs together. It all makes a lot of sense. But it doesn't make a lot of sense until you come to the end. And then you go back and see how it is an integrated whole. Same thing in the New Testament. You don't really get what the ending is. You don't really get what the final story is. You don't really get what is a surprise ending. It's a mystery. It's a hidden um, reality that, that, that comes to... I mean, it's revealed in the Old Testament through the prophets. It's seen by us through the prophets. But nobody got it until Jesus came. Nobody got what this mystery was until the end of the book until the New Testament comes, until Christ comes and the Spirit is given. And then we see what this story is all about and how it finds its proper conclusion in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this mystery now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, we're back to the prophetic writings. Has the word of God failed? Has the prophetic word failed? Has the, the word of God been rendered nullified by Israel's unbelief? Well, answer no. No. Paul says, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith uh, to all the nations. So the nations are going to hear this gospel message and come to faith, not through Israel, but through the true Israelite, Jesus himself. He becomes the one in whom all the promises are yea and amen, and all the blessings are found in him. That is the proclamation, not of Israel, but the proclamation of Christ, and him is crucified, that brings salvation to the nations. Show with me on that. But see how if you're a first century Jew, this is all uh, uh, new to you, uh, how do you integrate it with your worldview? Your worldview was that Israel would be central to the whole deal, and apparently it's, it's not. Gentiles are being saved, Gentiles are being brought into the church. Where does Israel stand? Has God been unfaithful to his promises? And then you look at the Gentiles, they're being brought in and they're saying, what's wrong with the Jews? Why haven't they come to faith? What's wrong with them? And maybe you begin to have the typical anti-Semitic thoughts, that for some reason is always pervasive among the nations. And they're thinking some sort of a character flaw, some sort of a weirdness about Jewish people, that uh, somehow they just don't come to faith. And you begin to have pride in your own ethnicity. You begin to to look down your nose at, at the Jew. The Jew in turn begins to get filled with wrath and enmity at the Gentile. And you have this horrific conflict. The only way this could be mediated is through, the, is through the one mediator between God and man. Himself man, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great peacemaker, who is the one who comes to be the prince of peace uh, to the nations. Anyway, that's the picture, I think, that we have. The conflict is there. Misunderstandings are held. There's a need to have Bible definitions for Bible terms and Bible words. And that's what Paul is doing here. Um, the argument is about scripture. God's faithfulness to his prophetic word. God fulfilling what he has promised. And again, you meet the concern in chapter 3 and verse 3. Where Paul asks the question, will their, uh, their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Can the unfaithfulness of the Jew uh, put aside the faithfulness of God? And Paul answers there with a resounding no. We translated God forbid. May this never be. And now he fleshes this out in chapter 9, upholding the integrity of God and his faithfulness to his word. So it's faithfulness to the word that is really the theme. It's not as though the word of God has failed, particularly in chapter 9. And I think that's one of the reasons you have so many quotations from the Old Testament. Why Paul is buttressing his argument again and again and again with the Old Testament scriptures. I pointed it out last week. You had a lot of Old Testament quotations early on in the book of Romans. Then you have the whole section where very little is quoted from the Old Testament. Now, um, one commentator said 40 times the Old Testament is quoted. I went through it myself and I, I can only see about 30 times the Old Testament is quoted. Maybe he's looking at different allusions I did not pick up. And they may be there. But that's still an awful lot of... Uh, uh, Old Testament quotes for three chapters. Three chapters. 30 Old Testament quotations being brought uh, to bear. And at the end of the day, what we come to see is far from negating the truthfulness of Scripture, far from negating um, the faithfulness of God or the, uh, the Word of God uh, failing, the Scriptures, the things that have happened in, in, in 
in terms of Israel's unbelief, in terms of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God, has in fact fulfilled the scriptures. It's exactly what the scriptures uh, spoke of. And it's not just a problem you have here in Romans 9. Uh, You look at uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. I think John has given a little bit of a polemic at this point uh, to try to explain what Jewish unbelief is all about and how it's something that the reader should not be considered as just wholly unexpected. You know, Aren't the Jews to be taking this gospel to the nations? Aren't through, through, the, through Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth to be blessed? Well, look what John says. John chapter 12. Let's begin at the, about the middle of verse 36. Well, let's read 36. While you have the light, Jesus says, Believe on the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And here's what John says. Though he had done... So many signs before them, they, that is the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in particular, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is something not wholly unanticipated. The word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And he quotes first from Isaiah 53, the beginning of that whole section of the suffering servant, where it begins, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us, who's believed the report that we've come to proclaim, who has believed this message, this account of what God has done through this servant, who has come to faith in that message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And those rhetorical questions are questions that are designed to be answered no, no one, or, or relatively few. Certainly not what we expected. We expected this report to go out and uh, amongst the nation of Israel, they would have come uh, running to their God, returning in mass to their God. But that did not happen. Who has believed our report? To whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? Relatively few. It's what Isaiah calls a remnant people. What Paul's going to quote from Isaiah later on, speaking of it in terms of a remnant people from Israel who would come to faith. And then John goes even further by quoting Isaiah 6. Therefore, they could not believe. This is a question of inability now. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I will heal them. Talk about divine sovereignty in this whole matter of the salvation of uh, the nations. But the point is, I think from Isaiah chapter 6, is that the inability really did rest in the reality of their their idolatrous hearts. It rested in the fact that when you have Isaiah uh, uh, 4 and 5 in particular, uh, in chapter 2, actually 2 to to 5 in Isaiah, there's that whole picture of of the nation given over to idols. Um, as many as your cities, city, so, so as many as your idols. Uh, the land is filled with idols, is what Isaiah says. The people were wholly given over to false religion. And again, the, the natural heart of, of human beings in sin is towards a hardened heart against their maker. But you bring false religion into the picture, and then that just reinforces a hard heart. And what happens when people worship blind uh, uh, idols who have eyes but do not see and ears that do not hear 
feet that do not walk, they can't do anything. Uh, they become like the things that they worship. I think that's the sense of what you have happening in Isaiah chapter 6. It's not that God is saying, I don't want you to come to me. It's not that God is saying, I don't want you to repent and, and turn to me. Think of the prophet Ezekiel. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, but that the wicked turn. Turn ye, turn ye. Why will you die? God's pleading with them. And he's not just spouting out insincere words. He's spouting out words that are deeply sincere. That God desires these people to turn and come to him. Uh, Jesus says, you will not come to me that you might have life. And he speaks of that in terms of a, a deep uh, sense of uh, the, the horror of unbelief. He weeps over the city. How often would I have healed, I healed you? But you would not. You would not. Again, the, the fault is them. It's, 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 it's not God, but, but God judges idol worshippers. And so their hearts and minds are blinded. And, and so the whole picture of the Old Testament is, yes, God's purpose is through this nation, but the way in which this gets fulfilled is not, does not mean that every Jew comes to faith. It doesn't mean that every Israelite comes to believe. In fact, the large majority won't and don't. They never did throughout their history. There was never an overwhelming outpouring of true religion. You, you, know, you know how thick the book is about revival amongst the, amongst the Israelites? Very, very thin. You don't have revivals amongst the Israelites. You have rebellions amongst the Israelites over and over and over again. You have golden calves. You have refusals to go up into the land. You have the apostasies in the book of Judges again and again and again. They turn to worship other gods. You see ultimately the Babylonian captivity coming as a result that my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, Jeremiah says, the fountain of living waters and you'd out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns. They could hold no water. Again, it's the rebellion of the people you see over and over and over again. And you see it in the day of our Lord. And so it was obviously never God's design that our concept of Israel should be such that Israel would be blessed of God in a way that they would be God's blessing to the nations in terms of everyone in the nation coming to faith. That was what they should have done, but it's never what they did. They never lived up to their high calling to be God's blessing uh, to the nations. And so God redefines Israel. And that's what Paul's doing in chapter, in chapter 9. After this section where he speaks of his own anguish of heart with respect to the Israelites, um, his own desire that if it could be, which it cannot, he would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brethren, uh, his kinsmen according to the flesh, which cannot be, nothing can separate him from the love of God. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's already the example of Moses saying, Lord, blot my name out of the book of life, but save them. And God said, no, no. They will bear the, the reality of their own transgressions. You cannot die for them. You cannot be blotted out for them. There's only one who could die for the sins of others, and that's Jesus, not Paul, not Moses, only Jesus. But Paul is expressing a genuine desire. Uh, he would... He would I mean, this is a man that put his, his life on the line again and again and again for the progress of the gospel among the nations. He's a man prepared to die. And he says, I'm prepared to die for the salvation of the nation of Israel. And I believe he means it. He means it with every fiber of his being. But of course it cannot be that he would be the means of their salvation. But that's the intensity in which he desires their salvation. And you might ask yourself, why did Paul write that? 
Why do you write that to the Romans? What's the point that he's trying to make? In my own estimation, I think he wants the Romans and us who read this letter to ask ourselves the question, what would I do for the salvation of other people? Would I walk across the street and introduce myself as a believer in Christ and talk to somebody about Jesus? I mean, a lot of people won't go that far. Won't even do that. And I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm just making that, telling that, that that's the question you need to be asking yourself. Here's a, here's a man that says, I, if, if it could be, uh, I wish myself that I could be cursed from Christ for the sake of others. What do we know of that kind of self-denying love? How, do we, how, how, how deeply is our prayers directed towards the salvation of the lost? How deeply is our, our, our support of those who are church planters and missionary laborers in other, other parts of the world? Uh, how, how much is our, our, our giving reflective of that love and that desire that people would be saved? You know, Hudson Taylor said that God's work done, done God's way will never lack God's supply. And you have missionaries on the field saying, we can't do this because there's not enough money. I guess he didn't live in the, you know, the 21st century, Hudson Taylor, because you know, people were altogether all too, all too much concerned with getting their toys. Then, you know, again, I don't, I, don't, I don't begrudge anybody a simple elegance in, in, in living their lives, of enjoying the things of this life. Um, but where's the concern for the gospel uh, factored in? Is that like part of the equation right at the end after you've you know, done the budget for all of, all of your concerns and your desires and, and your wants? And, you know, it, you know, do we care for the things of the gospel as much as Paul did? Even a smidgen towards as much as he did. And I think that's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Well, Paul mentions the Israelites and he mentions their blessings. Um, these he describes as advantages in chapter 3. He says, what advantage has the Jew? He mentions only one there. And that's the, that they had the oracles of God. That's the, probably the giving of the law, comparable to that at least in this list. But now there's an additional, I believe, six that are given here. Some say more, but it depends on how you... Uh, um, is, is being an Israelite one of the advantages? I'm not sure that that's, that's it. But it's that to them belongs, and here's where we begin to enumerate them, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From whom? From the patriarchs comes Christ. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And you know, I, we had a pastor years ago who used to say to us, blessings taken for granted become blessings abused, and blessings abused become blessings removed. And he used to say that more to the fact that as Americans, we don't cherish our, our blessings as we should. As Christians, we don't uh, cherish the blessings that we should. But if ever that was played out in real life, you see it in Israel's life. You see it in what happened in Israel. These advantages, these blessings that were given to them were, for that to, were towards them, blessings abused. These blessings ought to have brought them to God. But it really hardened their hearts against God. 
This again, you think of the book of Jeremiah where the people had the blessings of the, of the worship. He mentions the worship as one of the blessings. They had the tabernacle. And what did they do in the face of the tabernacle? Well, they came and brought their sacrifices fresh from ignoring the interests of the orphans and the widows, fresh from worshiping at the altar to Baal, fresh from acts of oppression and violence and murder and indifference and failure to care about the needs of others, just being all caught up with their own things, fresh from their adulteries and sexual sins. And he says, then you come and you worship me in my house. You think that's what I require? He says, you've you've made the house of God into a den of thieves, Jeremiah says. Well, they took the worship of God and they made it something they abuse. They think, well, we have God's worship so we can always get our sins atoned for just by going to the temple, just by bringing our sacrifices. Um, We have the covenants. So it really doesn't matter what we do. We're still the people. We're still the ones on the inside. We're still the ones favored by God. So what does it matter what we do? Does that sound like what Christians do sometimes? How Christians think? I can always ask for forgiveness. Always just know that I was saved again you take those blessings and you take them for granted that you don't live in their light and you don't live in the good of them and you don't live in a way that brings you to God rather than hardening your hearts against him justifying your sins living in your self-absorption and self-will those become abused blessings that will be removed as it was from Israel They were taken ultimately into Babylonian captivity. They were taken, cut off ultimately from being the people of God. And so these these blessings were for their good, but they they turned it into evil. What a horrible thing to take God's blessings and turn them into a curse to ourselves by simply abusing them, priding ourselves in them, boasting in these advantages, when we ought to be humbled before God that we should be the recipients of such blessings from his hands. And again, that's what Paul's assertion is with reference to the Jew. Uh, Back in chapter 2, he says, um, this is verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, it doesn't say you keep the law, obey the law, love the law, serve the law. (laughs) You, You rely on it. You rely on the law. Uh, and you boast in God. Then say you worship Him, you pray to Him, you trust in Him, you exalt in Him, you love Him, you serve Him. No, you just simply boast in God. Israel's God's our God, and so we're good. We got the law, we're good. And you know His will, and you prove what's excellent because you're instructed in the law. You're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness. Look at us. Look at all we have. Look at all that we do. You're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. Now Paul might have been writing this about himself before he was a Christian, all that he thought about himself, all the excellencies that uh, he prided in himself. He turns around and he persecutes Messiah's people. I mean, there's a sense of reality that has to come into this that if we have any benefit from the hand of God, it's not because we are worthy. Jacob said, I'm not worthy of the least of all of your mercies, all the kindnesses you've shown to me. 
we're not worthy of these mercies. But they were boasted in these things. They were priding themselves in these things. You think of in uh, the Gospels when John the Baptist says, don't think to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. Hey, we're okay. We don't, we don't need your baptism, John. We have Abraham to our father. And John says, God's able to raise up from these stones children to Abraham. They boasted in themselves. They boasted in their own privileges. Instead of a source of humility and humbling themselves before God, drawing near to Him with praise and thanksgiving and worship and, and love, uh, they just simply abused all of the privileges God lavished on them. And again, they're in the position now of not receiving the greatest of all of these blessings, which is Christ. Which is Christ. That's the ultimate of the blessings that were given to the people of God is that from their race according to the flesh is the Christ and then he says something about this one who is the Christ and again I know there's differences of opinion on on punctuation that's what it is, it's an argument about punctuation what Paul says here but I do believe however you punctuate it Paul's saying of Jesus he's God over all He's God over all. It's an expression of divine identity that Jesus himself possesses. He's God over all. And people say, well, Paul never calls Jesus God anywhere else. Well, I don't really think that's true. Uh, I think his references to all the Old Testament passages that speak of Israel's God having been fulfilled in Jesus is a tantamount to a, 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 a statement that Jesus is, 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 is Israel's God. Certainly, second, second. Uh, I'm sorry, Titus, Titus chapter two, is a reference to actually calling Jesus God, and so in Titus chapter two, you have the statement for the grace of God. This is verse eleven. Has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of who? Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Great God and Savior. That's who He is. He's our great God and Savior. He's God over all, blessed forever. He's our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's the greatest of all the blessings, is the enfleshment of God. The Word became flesh, dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory. It's in Jesus we see the glory. It's in Jesus we have the fulfillment of the law. It's in Jesus we have all of the blessings given to Israel coming to full, um, uh, full realization. Even, even this matter of the adoption... Paul says we've received the spirit of adoption but he also says, remember the adoption of Israel as a nation in the book of Exodus was what God said um, to Pharaoh to let my people go let Israel my firstborn son that's what he calls them, firstborn son Jesus is the firstborn uh, I'm sorry, Israel was the firstborn son and then in Romans chapter 8 Paul says about Jesus whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be what? The firstborn. The firstborn son. 
Jesus, the firstborn son among many brethren. Again, it's another reference to Jesus as, as the true Israelite. Israel was God's firstborn son. Jesus is the one who is the firstborn among many brethren. We become part of Israel through Jesus, through part of this redefined Israel, part of this new covenant people of God through Israel. I might, have, I might have something more to say about the language of Israel, Jew, circumcision, and the rest uh, later on. But uh, let's just move on just a little bit in terms of the passage itself. What Paul does then to, having given the statement of the blessings that Israel took for granted and abused, and these blessings that they have not come to the full realization of because they've rejected Christ, that's, that's the pivotal issue. Is they've not believed the gospel. They've not come to faith in Christ. And, and so what Paul then does is he redefines what Israel really is. And he, he does it with a bit of an Old Testament history lesson. He does some biblical theology of the Old Testament itself. Looking at what happened in the Old Testament. What the promises of God were. were and how the promises of God were, were realized. And you know, if you... If you would take the promises of God as a, you know, a literal interpreter of the Bible, you'd come to all the wrong conclusions. If you imposed your own sense of what literal fulfillment of biblical prophecy must lead to, you would simply not come to the right understanding of what God is doing. Paul says, for not all who descended from Israel belonged to Israel. That's, that's the major proposition. Not all who belonged to Israel, I'm sorry, not all who were descended from Israel belonged to Israel. And we would have thought that every single child by natural descent that came from Abraham would be considered the Israel of God. And Paul's saying, no, no, that's not true. There is a redefinition of what Israel is that doesn't really rest the scriptures. It really is in sync with what the scriptures actually tell us about Abraham's own physical children. The physical children that came from Abraham, not every one of them was reckoned for the seed of Abraham. Even though they were descendants biologically, they had Abraham's DNA. Yet they were not, they did not belong to Israel. And you know, that principle is also seen in the Old Testament as well. Before we look at the history lesson, let me just tell you, there's many, many passages in the Old Testament that bring you to that realization that just because they descended from Abraham, just because they were physical Israelites born to Israelite parents, does not mean they're part of the true Israel of God. Think of Psalm 73. Psalm 73 begins with the words, Surely God is good to Israel. Well, let me ask you this about the writer of Psalm 73. Was Psalm 73 written by a man who, living in Israel, probably the king in Israel, maybe a priestly figure in Israel, God's goodness to Israel, was that all pervasive in his experience? See, he has an experience of envying the wicked. People that are proud, people that are rebellious, people that do not honor God, the people that 
boast in their sinfulness and in their wickedness. And he's brought to the place saying, in vain I've cleansed my heart. See, his problem really in Israel was the Israelites themselves. His problem were his fellow Israelites. And they had actually become a curse to him because their lives, their example, brought him nothing but difficulty and trouble. It was, the, it was Israelites who were the arrogant that he's, well, he's talking about in verse 3. I was envious at the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's talking about wicked Israelites. He's, he's not saying, well, I moved over into some other country and then I experienced this. This is as an Israelite writing in the context of temple worship. I went into the sanctuary of God or the, maybe the tabernacle. Hard to know what time exactly this was written in the Psalm of Asaph. But the point of it is that his problem were Israelites. So what does the writer do when he makes that opening statement, truly God is good to Israel? And he knows what he's going to write about. He knows what's coming. He knows what his, his, his concern is. He knows how he's going to pour out his difficulty before the Lord and before the reader. And he knows, he can't say, surely the goodness of God coming to Israel is pervasive in terms of all the Israelites being blessed of God, coming under the goodness of God and manifesting proper reactions to the goodness of God to them. And so he qualifies what Israel is, doesn't he? That's what he does. He qualifies what Israel is. He says, truly God is good to Israel. And then he says, to those who are pure in heart. To those who are pure in heart. Lest you, lest you think I mean every single Israelite. I don't. I don't. I don't mean the, I don't mean the arrogant ones. I don't mean the proud ones. I don't mean the idolatrous ones. I don't mean those who boast in their wickedness and in their evil. I mean those who are pure in heart. Those are the ones that evince themselves or demonstrate that they're the true Israel of God. I mean, you think of the way the prophets address the people. I mean, Isaiah's writing to Israel and Judah. And how does he address them? Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Well, Isaiah, surely you believe all the Israelites descended from Abraham were Israelites. Well, when Isaiah addresses Jerusalem and Judah, you know what he says? Verse 10, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. You rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. What did God do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He obliterated them. And he's saying, you folks do not deserve anything better. And he points out their wickedness in their worship. They're bringing sacrifices with their hands soaked with blood and with their iniquity fully upon their hearts and minds. They're a faithless, wicked, unregenerate city. Like it more unto Sodom and Gomorrah than unto the true Israel of God. 
the true people of God. There are many examples of that in the Old Testament scripture. So, I mean, Paul's not pointing out something that's not verified again and again and again in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. But he goes from the beginning. How was it from the beginning? Well, he says, not all, in verse 7, are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Well, God made his covenant with Abraham and his seed, right? His descendants. Well, Abraham had descendants who, Paul says, are not part of the children of Abraham through whom the promises have come. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's not through Ishmael. It's not through the sons of Keturah. It's through Isaac, your seed shall be called. That doesn't mean God did not make provision for for Ishmael. I mean, he did. There's this angel that was sent to Hagar when he was cast out of the house. God gave provision, protection, and even an inheritance to Ishmael. But it was not to Ishmael that these promises belonged, even though Genetically, he's a descendant of Abraham. And Paul draws from that, it's not the children of the flesh. It's not just because you have Abraham's DNA that you're part of the people of the covenant, that you're part of the children of God. It's the children of the promise who are counted as the offspring. God's promise was not that God that he would raise up seed through Hagar. He says in chapter 17, about this time next year, I will return. Uh, Verse 9 quotes uh, Genesis 18, I believe it is. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not Hagar. That's something they did on their own. That's something, a plot they hatched to produce an offspring. But it's not the offspring God had promised it's through Sarah it's the child of the promise not the child of the flesh hold that thought in mind it's important the Israel of God are the children of the promise not the children merely produced by physical generation there is a promise sorry word that's here but then Paul moves to the next generation the next generation. Abraham's seed is not to define, be defined by Ishmael or the other children, but only through his promise through Sarah, Isaac. Through Isaac your seed shall be called. And then Paul says in verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived. That's the next generation. Isaac's wife, Rebekah. Isaac is the child of the promise. The wife is gotten for him from Padnaram, Rebecca, marries Isaac, and she conceives children by Isaac. And Paul says, though they were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, that is Rebecca, was told, the older 
will serve the younger. Now, that's not how things were done in Israel or the ancient Near East. It was the older child that was the firstborn to whom the rights of what's called primogeniture were given. They were the firstborn son. And that should have been Esau, the firstborn son. To him belonged the birthright. To him belonged the blessing. And prior to their birth, Rebecca was told. Now she had her hand in conspiring to get at least the blessing part to belong to Jacob. And then she dressed him up with, with a coat of skin to be, have hairy arms. says the father might be deceived into thinking that he was actually blessing Esau when he was actually blessing Jacob. Um, so she, knowing this, had a hand in it. But the point is, before they were born, she was told who the one through whom the God, purpose of God according to election might stand. God has a purpose according to election. It's a matter of divine choice. It's not a matter of human expectation. It's a matter of divine election. It's not what people would expect God would do. It's what God himself purposes to do and chooses to do. He says, before they're born, the older will serve the younger. Now, let me just say this. Why God does what he does, we do not know. We do not have access to that information. God's not disclosed all of the inner workings of his own heart, mind, and counsel to declare those answers as to why he does what he does. And we ought never to think he's just arbitrary about it. He's doing it with no rhyme or reason. He has his reasons, though they're not disclosed to us. And that's the point of this whole section. We're going to read stuff in Romans 9, Romans 10 and 11 that just simply boggle the human mind. And you say, what in the world is God doing? And how in the world could God do that? It doesn't seem to accord with our principles of what we think equity is or justice is or right is. Or Paul's going to raise questions. Why does he yet find fault? Who's resisted as well? How does God do these things? And Paul doesn't really answer those questions. In fact, he seems to rebuke people for even asking the question themselves. Who are you, old man, he says, to, re- to reply to God? God has his rights to do as he wills in the armies of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And there's basically two problems that I think enter into this whole question of divine purpose and plan and in the world. And, and, and on the one hand, there are those who say, I really, not, I really don't want to bother. <laughs> I mean, that, that stuff's just too heavy, too high, too incomprehensible. I don't get it. It just causes problems, gives little solutions. And so let me just explain it away. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They simply explain it away. And they don't try to understand it at all. And then there's another group of people that come along and say, we understand it completely. We understand it fully. And in fact, you know what? That's about the only thing we understand about the Bible anyhow. Because no other passages, no other truths, no other statements about divine love or divine will uh, enter in. We just know God is the sovereign God who does his will in accordance with the election of grace. And that's the end of the story. Nothing need be added at all. 
And I say both of those are extremes we need to stand way, way clear of. Take that in a minute, because Paul ends this statement, and this is where our study needs to end. And let's just move ahead a bit, see the end, and then we'll, we'll conclude for, for this morning. Paul says, the end of the day, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. You cannot search them out. They're unsearchable. Unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable his ways. You say, I don't get it. Okay, that's, that's a proper confession. You don't get it. I don't get it either. But I can believe it. I can believe what the Word of God says, even if I do not get it. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Not you, not me, not any human being. Who has been his counselor? Not you, not me, not any other human being. For of him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Doxology, praise, is to be the end of the thing, not to think we have it all figured out. But we believe, because God's word declares. I don't know, for sure, for sure you know, but this is the way Calvino comes that doctrine about elections? Yes. That's yeah. where it's coming from? That's, yeah, yeah, when people badge you all the time about it, it's, yeah, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. They didn't make it up. <laughs> but, you know, the question is how we understand it, and we need to understand it in faith. We need to understand it just with the recognition that God is an infinite, eternal, unchangeable being who we cannot understand his ways. But his ways are ways that are always designed to humble us and to produce worship in us. And so what needs to result from our addressing these things is not the pride that says, I have it figured out. It's the humility that says, I don't have it figured out, but blessed be God, his wisdom, his knowledge, his ways are worthy of worship and adoration and praise. And if that's where we end up, we're getting the biblical teaching clearly. If we look to evade it, avoid it, we're not going to understand it as it's meant to be understood. If we're going to think it's all there is, it's in the Bible, we've also misunderstood it. Let's take it for the reason that it's been given to bring us to bless, to worship, to praise the living and true God. And then to bring us to the realization that our expectations are not the measure of reality. I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. They think that God has said this when God has not, he said that. We, they expect that God will do this when this simply not ever told us in the scripture that God will do this. Rather, he has told us he will do that, or maybe he hasn't addressed the issue. And our point is to embrace what he has taught us with humility, with thankfulness, with worship and with adoration, and, and understand the reason, the practical reason that these things are being taught to us. And again, it's not to hang us up with sleepless nights, I just can't figure God out at all. No, it's to bring us to have our hearts at rest in the reality that His plan, His purpose, His will is being fulfilled. And hence, His word can be trusted. His word is a faithful word. And if we have any notions ever that it's somehow not faithful, it's because we've misunderstood what he's declared. And we need we the ones that need to be corrected, not God. We are the ones 
that need to be corrected and not God. And upon that note, we'll conclude for the morning. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your glory and majesty, your wisdom and your knowledge. We're thankful that your will and purpose is for good. It's to bring blessing to the nations, even if it's in ways that are unexpected, unanticipated by us. We pray we would be your worshipers as you continue through the scriptures to teach us and to unfold before our our understanding something of the marvel of your sovereign ways that we would say in our own heart of hearts, this is good, nothing to be rejected, nothing to be distrusted, but having our hearts at rest in the fact that you are the God who does your will in all things. So be pleased to hear our prayers, our, our offerings of praise, be pleased to be with us as we greet one another this Lord's Day morning, as we enter into the hour of worship to come, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.